Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Today we're going to look at the promise of His coming and what did the promise of His coming mean for not only Israel, but what did the promise of His coming mean for mankind? You know, we uh, traditionally after the first uh, December 1st, we enter into the season that Christians call Advent. As old, as the older I get, the more and more I have a dislike for the word Christmas. <laughs> I really want it to be the Advent. It is about as we celebrate the promise and the fulfillment of Christ's coming. And the term Advent simply comes from the Latin term Adventus, which simply means arrival. What are we celebrating? As you boil it down to brass tacks, what, are, what is it we're celebrating? We're celebrating the arrival of Christ, Messiah, Christ, the Savior of the world. And it's a glorious day. And I think over the years, it has been cheapened to such a, such a degree. I'm not going to get into more than that, but I just think for us as believers... This is a great time for us to draw near to Christ, to fully come to full recognition of what was accomplished. I mean, this, was a, this just wasn't a birth. It wasn't just a date in history. This was the work of God, God entering his own creation. And notice something, just to give you a little bit of the background, God enters creation not at a high point in Israel's history, but at a very, very low point in Israel's history. The book of Isaiah is written about approximately 700 years before the birth of Christ. And Israel was divided. You know there was originally 12 tribes, right? 10 tribes the northern kingdom, left and formed their own confederacy. It was a civil war, and the ten tribes of the north divided and said, we're our own country, right? Which left the southern kingdom, which was Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which was the southern kingdom, right? And Israel... The northern kingdom, well, they just kind of fell off the wagon, if you would. You look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and what do you see? You see one wicked king after another, one after another, who followed. And by the way, a judgment of the Lord, one of the biggest judgments of the Lord that the Lord gives is when a people rebel against him, he, they, uh, the Lord gives them wicked leaders. And we see this in Israel very clearly. And the ten tribes went and they make alliances and, and treaties with uh, the, you know, the pagan nations that are around them. And then in the south, you have Judah. And their record wasn't much better. You look at Judah, there was really just one really righteous king, that is King Hezekiah. But what was happening in Judah at the time was integration of pagan practices with the worship of Yahweh, right? So they would take some of the pagan ways and they would include it into the worship, kind of covering their all bases. So they would have their little idols and they would have 
some of the things that they would keep in the house just to make sure you have a good harvest because if if Yahweh can't do it, well, at least I got this other guy in here that's going to be able to do it as well. And this is detestable in the eyes of the Lord. And as God always does in times of darkness, God raises a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah came from wealth. Isaiah came from royalty. We probably are most familiar with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, right? When he enters in and he sees the Lord high and exalted and lifted up, right? And he sees the seraphim flying back and forth and crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And he says, woe is me, I'm a man undone. And then he hears later on a voice from the altar say, who will we send forth? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. God makes him a prophet to the nation. Now, a prophet wasn't a good job. As a matter of fact, if you look through the history of the prophets and most of the men of God, they were not well-liked because they brought messages of truth. So Israel is at a particularly dark, dark, dark time. And what followed Israel? Well, because of their sin, what we see is Israel and Judah become captured time and time again. In 722, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, are invaded and taken, conquered. They're conquered by the Assyrians in 722. So now Israel is no longer independent. Israel is now a captured people under a pagan king. Well, I shared with you a little bit that the same thing that was happening in the northern Northern kingdom occurred in the southern kingdom. And in 586 B.C., Right, The Babylonians invade Jerusalem, and they ransack Jerusalem. And after the Babylonians, it was the Persians. And after the Persians, it was the Greeks. And after the Greeks, it was the Romans. So the history was that these people are going to be captive. And in the midst of this darkness, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a future deliverer speaks of someone who out of the darkness is going to come and restore righteousness and justice and truth upon the upon the earth notice it occurs at a dark time god saw the darkness and god knew what god had to do he was going to send his appointed messiah and this is going to be the deliverer now we are living post-Christ's first coming. But we are living pre-Christ's second coming. And if we look at the landscape around us, it's not much different than Israel or Judah. These are dark times. But just as back then there was a hope, we also have a hope today. And that hope is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that's predicated on being saved and knowing that you are in Christ. So today we're going to look at the promise of his coming. I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. 
And we're going to look at three verses specifically. We're going to look at verse 2, and then we are going to look at verses 6 and 7. And in verse 2, we're going to see that this is no ordinary prophecy. No ordinary prophecy. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And Isaiah the prophet sums up the spiritual condition of the nation Judah in this verse. He uses two metaphors. He says, walk, those that walk in darkness will see a great light. He uses the term walk and he uses the term darkness. The term walk walk is what they call present. It's a verb used as present prophetic, meaning he's speaking it contextually in the prophecy. The darkness is the spiritual darkness that had invaded the land. It is obscurity. That's what that word darkness means. It means it's obscured. When something is obscured, you can't see it. That's because the darkness has become so pervasive. And I shared with you all the years of captivity that had come to them, but I also shared with you that here in this moment of darkness, what does the prophet prophesy? Those who live in a dark land, light will shine upon them. Those that are in the dark land, that light is going to shine. Christian brother or sister, there's always hope. There's always hope because of Christ. There's always hope because of the gospel. There's always hope that even though we may live in a dark time, we don't have to lament, we don't have to be sorrowful for God who has promised is faithful and true to deliver. God made a covenant promise to his people Israel. God said they will be a kingdom of priests to, to him. And even though they had strayed, the promises of God remained. And God says that those who live in a dark land, light will shine upon him. Previously in Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to turn over there real quick, Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah prophesied of a child who was to enter the world and would be nothing but unique. Look at Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. In this time of calamity, in Israel's history, God still had a plan. And there will be some great, there's not going to be some great human king. There's not going to be some great military leader. There isn't going to arise a great statesman or a political person who is going to deliver Israel. Who is going to deliver Israel? It will be Emmanuel, God himself. God himself will enter his own creation. God himself will set the record straight. 
God is going to enter and change all things. And I submit to you right from the very beginning, I mentioned to you that this isn't an ordinary prophecy and that we're here celebrating the promise of his coming. But it's not merely the promise of his coming. It is the magnitude. It is the impact of what his coming, of what Christ's coming means to every believer in Christ. It means life, eternal life, life with God, life in the power of God, life with a certainty that on that great day, whether we shut our eyes on this earth or whether we hear the trumpet and the shout of the archangel and we see the dead in Christ going before us, either or we have a future inheritance in Christ. That's better than any Christmas gift. That's better than any Christmas tree. It's better than the materialism that the world sells to us over and over and over again. This is reality of faith. This is truth. This is what we hang our hope to. Even those of us that may experience dark days, those of us that may be going through trials, those of us that may be going through times of testing, those of us that say, Lord, I don't think I could hold on for another day, even those of us, we have that certainty of that hope. You know, the prophecy continues in verses 6 and 7. I mentioned it wasn't an ordinary prophecy, and the second thing we see in verses 6 and 7 is this is no ordinary child. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I don't know if you like Handel's Messiah. I love Handel's Messiah. And one of the famous portions of Handel's Messiah is this verse. For unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born. Notice a few things about this. Verse 6 really builds upon the previous prophecy found in Isaiah 7.14. Right? We said in Isaiah 7.14 it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. And in 7.14, the child spoken about is said to be a sign to the nation. I want you to realize that. It's said to be a sign to the nation. But in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, this child being spoken about is also a gift to the nation. Right? This is a unique child. This is no ordinary child. 
We see in Isaiah 7.14 that this child is of supernatural origin and it's been born and the child will be born of a virgin. Now there are there are some liberal scholars that will say, well, virgin simply means a young unmarried woman, right? So a young unmarried woman will have a child. Well, number one, that was not very common like it is today, back in those days. The law had certain provisions about anyone who got pregnant out of wedlock, number one, but a natural birth isn't much of a sign. The significance of this birth is that it's going to be born, this child will be born of a virgin, a woman who did not know a man. And we know this because, first of all, we know that, number one, this is what the word actually means there in the Hebrew, but we also know from Luke one thirty-five that our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit. A virgin young girl will bear a child. This This unique child has no earthly father. This is what makes it unique. And therefore, this is why it becomes a sign unto the nation. For his father is God. Turn over to Luke um, 1, verse 35. Luke 1, 35. And here the angel answers. Mary asks a question in verse 34 and says, and said to the angel, how can this be? since I am a virgin. And in verse 35, the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. This child conceived by God Himself. Paul puts it this way. I love this verse. I think this is one of my favorite Christmas verses. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And note as well that this child, in addition to its unique origins and in addition to its unique birth, This child is given a unique name and title in Isaiah 7.14. And that title is very specific. Emmanuel. God with us. Now, no matter how you would look at the Hebrew text, this is an important point, no matter how you would look at the Hebrew text, It cannot be interpreted that it is a God. It cannot be interpreted that there is a God with us. The words are clear. The prophet indicates that this child is indeed God with us. And the Apostle Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes this even more abundantly clear. In Matthew 1.23, you don't have to turn there. Quoting the text, he says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which 
translated, he gives it, God with us. Now in Isaiah 9, 6, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of this special child, adds additional clarity to this. He adds additional clarity to the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14. He was previously given a unique name and title, and he was definitely of a unique origin. But now in Isaiah 9, 6, he speaks of this child's unique roles and unique titles. Look at Isaiah 9, 6. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And immediately we see something. This child is going to be a ruler of some sort. What government would the prophet be referring to? He is a Jew. He's of Israel. This has to be the kingly line of David. And this is a continuation. This child will be a continuation of the great kingly line of David. Therefore, it is the fulfillment of what we know as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant refers to God's promises through David that is found in, in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. And this is an unconditional covenant made between God and David through which God promises David and Israel that Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from the line of David. Covenant is an interesting word because it's an agreement that God makes with himself. He binds himself by his own name. Therefore, God cannot lie, right? It is impossible for God to lie, right? And so he tells that the, the throne of David will never end and that the great deliverer, the great Messiah, the Prince of Peace is going to come from that line, right? Notice here the prophet Isaiah says the government is going to rest upon his shoulders. We see some other prophecies regarding the Davidic covenant. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 14 says this, And it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to your father's, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And this is the key point. But I will settle him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. It's amazing. It's really amazing because you study the book of Revelation. As you start getting toward the end of chapter 1920, you see this Davidic kingdom. You see Christ being the fulfillment of this kingly line. We like to talk about Christ as our friend. We like to talk about Christ as our Savior. We like to talk about Christ as our best buddy. But do you know that Christ is your King? Do you know that He's royal and majestic? Do you know that He's glorious and arrayed in splendor? The prophet Jeremiah saw this as well. In Jeremiah 23.5, he writes, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In Luke 1, 32, the prophecy of him says, And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And in Acts 13, 34, speaking of Jesus, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to the decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Christ has a unique title. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Why? Because he is of that kingly line. And the promise that David's house and kingdom and throne will be established forever is significant because it shows that God's word is indeed true. And it's true over the millenniums. And it's true over the centuries. And God's word will prove to be true into eternity which is why we place such a premium upon the word of God. And the child in, in Isaiah 9, 6, that kingdom of David, he will have an eternal kingdom. Jesus Christ is that king. And like they were at the first advent, we in the second advent await for that day when he will set his feet on the earth and set up that earthly kingdom. And what a glorious state that's going to be. In Revelation 19, 16, we have this image of Christ coming for a second coming. And I would encourage you to read all of Revelation 19, but this really struck me, verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lord of Lords. So we see that this was no ordinary child. And we see he also has no ordinary titles. Let's look at the rest. Second part of verse 6. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These are not names like you would name someone John or Sam or Fred or Mary, but rather these are very specific titles that are given to this very unique child. And these titles speak of Christ's deity. I want to make this perfectly clear. It speaks of Christ's eternal deity. Let's look at some of these titles. Number one, wonderful Counselor. Now, this is the first of uh, title Christ may appear to describe. Some translations describe it as wonderful counselor. In other words, as if wonderful is an adjective that describes the counselor. But I think the King James Version has it best, as it shows it as two separate titles. He is wonderful. He is wonderful. He is extraordinary. He's hard to be figured out with the human mind. 
It's God dealing with his people. God is awesome, mighty, glorious, magnificent. He is so wonderful that the human mind can't comprehend him. You know, we think one of the tragedies in the church today is that we think sometimes we have God and we have Christ figured out. And we, we, we like to say, well, he does this, he does that, he does this, and we draw this ima- imaginary box. And we say, there it is. It all fits in there. But the wonder of Christ, the wonder of God, far exceeds anything we could ever conceive of in our finite minds. And here he is called wonderful. He supersedes the human mind. He transcends our deepest thoughts. And he is also called here counselor. And this is one to advise, one to, to give counselor. In Isaiah 28, 29, we see these, these two terms coming together as it reads, and there also came from the Lord of hosts who have made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. So the question begs us, who is this, who is this one who is wonderful in might and counsel? It's none other than the Lord God. None other. As a matter of fact, We see his next title, don't we? He's called Mighty God. Now listen, there's no ambivalence with this. There's no ambiguity with this. This is rendered the Mighty God. That's what it's rendered, the Mighty God. Not a, but the. And it doesn't imply one of many gods but it implies one almighty God. And there is only one. And yet, this child is given that title. He's given that title. Designating him as the mighty one. As the almighty God. We see here, this is the same title used of God in Deuteronomy 10.17 where it states, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. The awesome God. The deity of Jesus Christ's divine essence is declared here. And this is consistent, if you think about it, with the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, right? What did it say? And his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I started out by saying this expands upon that role, right? And so it is consistent with the prophecy of 714. There's another title our Lord is called. He is called Eternal Father. Rightly translated, it is the Father of Eternity. That's the right translation, the Father of Eternity. Right, And there is only one God and Father of all. And this prophecy of this child tells of a special child that is divine in nature, 
who inhabits and possesses eternity and is loving, tender, and compassionate to his children. I don't know about you, but I kind of get wowed out at this. As a matter of fact, as I study this, you kind of get lost in some of the grandeur, and I, I probably apologize if I'm not doing justice to this, but I'm trying to do the best that I can. The Father of Eternity, every single one of these titles deals with the deity of Christ. And lastly, he is called here the Prince of Peace. Here comes the prince who will finally bring peace to the earth, vanquish his foes, and establish righteousness on the earth and bring bring peace to all the nations. Listen, the angels announced that title at his birth in Bethlehem in Luke 2.14. The heavenly host declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people whom he is pleased. All these names, all these titles tell of one who is certainly not human, certainly not one of many gods, certainly not ordinary, but rather of a divine child with full authority and sovereignty over all. One who will bring peace, righteousness, and salvation to his people and the nation. The Messiah, the chosen one, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw that he was no ordinary, it was no ordinary prophecy, it was no ordinary child. We've seen that it is no ordinary titles were given to him. And I submit to you now that we enter no ordinary season. What is the impact to us today? So we we had a little bit of theology, we had a little background we had a little bit of history so you have the right to ask the question so so what what does that mean to me how does that impact my life and so as we enter this advent season it is important that as believers that we know that the birth of jesus christ changes everything. Listen, it changes everything. If you're a believer in Christ, you were bound in your trespasses and sin. If you were a believer in Christ, you were corrupted to this world. If you were a believer in Christ, you had no fellowship with God. The birth of Jesus Christ, the promise of His coming, and the actual fulfillment of His coming changes the ball game completely. Now, Sinful men and women can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. That our God can now take our sins and cast them in the depths of the ocean. That they would be remembered no more. That as far as the east is from the west, so far can God remove our transgressions. That if we were to confess our sins, that he would be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That it's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? The righteous? No, to save sinners. Of which the Apostle Paul says, I am the chief, I am the foremost. The the coming of Christ, this prophecy of Christ, this fulfillment of Christ is the game changer. 
and it changes everything. And if you are a believer in Christ, if you've come to that place of repentance and faith in Christ, then where should your worship be during this time of year? Should not our hearts rally and worship Christ and glorify Christ and bring nothing but glory to Christ and to dispense with so much of, other, of the other things that, that tend to obscure our vision and obscure our worship. Isaiah follows these prophecies with more about the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesies about John the Baptist. Isaiah prophesies about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 of Christ's crucifixion. Isaiah prophesies of Christ in the glory of God, Christ the ruling king on the throne of David. Other prophets like Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, and more will foresee this great Christ. They'll foresee it. God will give them the prophetic glimpses. But what does this mean to the believer? Turn in your Bibles to John 17. I'll close with this. John 17. Look at verse 24. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is right before he enters into his suffering. And Jesus is praying for his disciple. John 17 should be rightly termed, this is the Lord's prayer. What we know as the Lord's Prayer is the disciples' prayer, but this is the Lord's Prayer as he prays for his disciples. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire, they, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Christ desired to seek and save that which was lost. The Father had ordained in eternity past to send forth His Son to save a people, to be a kingdom and priest for Him. That the Lord God would bestow His love upon His chosen people and those chosen and beloved of God would love the Lord with all of their heart, mind, and soul. So stop right here for a quick second. What does all of this mean to the believer? What does it mean to me? Look at the words of Christ. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Christ's desire that for all who put their faith and trust in Him would be with Him. That has to be the longing of our souls. Do you long to be with Jesus? 
Do you long to feel His presence? Do you long to know Christ? Not merely know about Him, but to know Christ. But it goes beyond that. Christ desires that they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Christ loves us so much that his heart's desire that we would be with him and the Father for all eternity. But it doesn't stop there. It goes further. Look at verse 26. And I have made thy name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. Not only is Christ's desire for the believer to see his glory, and by the way, that is that is. Mind-blowing to begin with. If we saw, if we were able to see the glory of Christ and comprehend the glory of God, that would be mind-blowing and ultimately fulfilling in and of itself. But look at the Lord's words here. Not only is his desire that we would see his glory, but that we as believers, listen to this, would be able to experience the love that God had for Christ. As believers, we would experience that love and we would experience that love for all eternity. The coming of Christ, this unique child, was a game changer. The promise of his coming was a game changer. His fulfillment of that promise was a game changer. And let me share with you, church, his coming again is a game changer. And it's a game changer for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now that is only made possible by Christ coming, by Christ being born of a virgin, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, living a sinless life, offering himself a ransom for our sin, and giving his life. Dying on the cross of Calvary, and his blood being shed as an atonement for sin. Dying an actual physical death. And on the third day, resurrecting physically from the dead, being witnessed by over 500 people, and after 40 days ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he's awaiting the day. Oh, man, he's awaiting the day when there's going to be a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet blast of God, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we which shall remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then a day is going to come when he's going to descend to the earth. Where he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And he will set the record straight. And justice will rule. And righteousness will rule. And he will vindicate. And he will vanquish his foes. But he will be that eternal father for all those who love him. 
and we will dwell with him in glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. The promise of his coming is a game changer. It's a game changer for all who put their faith and trust in Christ. So let me ask you this. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? I realize that probably most people in here will probably say yes. But I want to challenge you with something. There is cultural and there's genuine. You may have been raised in a culture with the gospel. You may have been raised hearing the story of the virgin birth and and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And intellectually, you may give assent to certain facts about them. But my question for you is, do you know Christ? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ? Has your life changed as a result of the new birth? Was there even a new birth? Does your heart hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you grieve over your sin? Or do you rationalize it? Or do you don't even care? Maybe you're immune to it. Listen, I was raised in a culture like that. I came from a lineage of people. I learned the gospel as a young child and then as a young man. But it was not until Christ convicted me of my sin, until I realized that I was nothing but a filthy, hypocritical, wretched sinner before the eyes of a holy and a righteous God, and that I needed to repent. I needed to cry out for mercy. I need to say, God, save me lest I die. I needed to be born again. I needed the indwelling Holy Spirit. I had to turn away from my sin and run to Christ as the only remedy, the only Savior, and trust completely in His finished work. I know that many times we think and we say, I'm not good enough for heaven. Let's answer that question, you're not. So don't don't worry, waste any more cycles on it. You're not. And then we have questions like, I, why, why, I don't do anything worthy for Christ. Let's answer that one. You don't. And were you to live a million lifetimes of 10,000 years, and every single day in those lifetimes you would do good works, it would all be nothing but filthy rags. Which is why we cry and we trust ourselves to Christ. Paul told Titus, with the goodness and kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not according to deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us lavishly in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means... My only hope, my only trust is Christ. I don't know how it works. I don't know the mechanics. The scriptures tell us what happens to somebody that's saved. But I know this much. If you're saved, you're changed. 
And you're not the same person you used to be. All of the old things have gone away, Paul says. And behold, everything has become new. And what we need back in the church today is purity and we need back fire and we need back holiness and we need back hunger and we need to shed the yoke of unforgiveness and we need to shed the yoke of sin and the yoke of culturalism and we can't be like the rest of the world murmuring about that there's no hope that this one's not elected, that one's not elected, who's in the White House, who's in the Congress. It doesn't matter. God never lost control. If we were the window of heaven would open up right now, we would see him sitting on the throat and say, all things work according to the way I've done it. Our hope is Christ. Not a political party. Our hope is Christ. Not our good deeds. Our hope is Christ. And Christ alone. And so my heart's desire as we enter this first week of the Advent season is that this would just not be historical narrative for you. But that you would realize that the promise of this unique child changes everything. And I pray that it changes all of us. Let's go to Lord in prayer.